Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. The following contains depictions of violence, alcohol and drug use, and foul language. After serving in the Navy, Henry got a job in Portland, Oregon. Sharp-featured, cleft-chinned, with the unibro, he signed a lease on a plot of land out in the woods. Though he lived and worked in the city, he often drove nearly two hours to his plot of land. The 40 by 40 land was on 200 acres owned by a man who only leased plots to preppers. Rangers couldn't live on the land, but they could build an underground shelter. They could stock their shelters and camp for a maximum of a month at a time. The lease agreement stated that in the aftermath of an SHTF, shit hits the fan, event the renter could live on the land until the emergency was over. The rent was cheap, and Henry paid the owner to build an underground bunker on his plot. Henry drove out regularly to modify his shelter, stock it with survival necessities, and practice defense. In the early years, mostly single people rented plots. These like-minded people often played war games together in the woods for days at a time. The 50 renters got to know the land and each other. Henry would return to his city job where he either worked at a desk or took auto taxis to job sites, but he dreamed of surviving in the woods. Henry turned 30. He married and had two daughters. Twice a year, he drove his family out to the woods. They winter camped for a week and summer camped for a month. Many of the other preppers were also raising families by that time. The children banded together and grew up playing in the woods like cousins. The owner moved off the land and let the renters turn his four-bedroom home into the clubhouse. Each winter a big Christmas party was held there. The renters set up your tents near their buried bunkers. Those who lived far from the clubhouse would get there by mountain bike. Motor vehicles were forbidden. Everyone kept the 200 acres as woods-like as possible. Henry's excitement for prepping passed on to his family, but he got busy, and his interest dwindled. His oldest wanted to go to soccer camp, and the family didn't go to the woods for a couple of summers. He hired the owner's son, Joe, to make sure his bunker was always well-stocked and in good condition. Joe sent photos of the bunker and receipts. After the media attack, Henry and Marguerite, his wife, took Paxson. Fortunately, Allison and Beth, their daughters, were never exposed. The school closed and Henry's work was put on hold. With an extra pantry of food, plastic barrels of water, a propane tank, and other supplies they stayed at home watching their neighborhood empty. Summer turned to winter. Marguerite homeschooled the girls. Food and water ran low. They called an auto taxi, loaded it full, and headed for the woods. Because of power-drained cars jamming roads, it took them three days. An auto taxi dropped them off on a highway, then they walked through a grassy field and hiked up through the woods. Henry's foldable plays a morning alarm, and the whole family rises from under covers in the year, tent. Allison, nine years old with blonde braided hair and skinny legs and arms, helps her mom make oatmeal. Dad digs through one of the bags he carried into the woods the night before. Beth, twelve with a hatchet nose like her dad, walks over to him. What are you doing? He looks up. Oh, I'm looking for gifts for you too. Beth and Allison perk up and exchange smiles. Allison jumps and claps her hands. Beth sways side to side. Their dad digs out two boxes. Here they are. He hands one to Beth. Allison runs to get the other one. They open them and pull out shiny necklaces. Henry helps them put them on. Gold flower pendants hang on each. Beth says, is it a pearl in the middle? Henry stands before them. Now these are special necklaces. They make videos that play online. Beth says, oh, streaming video. Henry nods. Yes. Allison says, so you can always see what we're doing. 
Country Fit Marguerite says, no, we won't spy on you. But if you girls get lost, we can check on the video to see where you are. Dad says, you like them. Both girls nod resolutely. Allison says, they look the same so everyone will know we're sisters. Dad says, that's right. Don't tell people what they do. Mom says, you hear that, girls. Don't tell anyone. Some people here are anti-surveillance. Later, Henry leaves the tent, and Beth runs to catch up. Where are you going? Henry turns four boxes over in his hands. I made these emergency signalers. I want to get them out to some of the others. Beth says, microcontrollers. Henry gives her a wink. That's right. They each have solar panels and batteries so they should run indefinitely. In the clubhouse, Ned, with a stringy physique from running marathons, shows Henry and Beth to a closet converted to the radio room. Henry pulls a radio the size of a copy machine away from the wall the patches in the little box. Just choose a channel and hit the switch. It will send out SOS and the GPS coordinates for this location. Ned nods, bushy eyebrows rolling over like hairy caterpillars. Okay. I'll let the others know. Beth crosses her arms like her dad. It's a microcontroller. Ned says, is that so? Beth nods. I help him sometimes. Henry asks Ned, have you had a lot of trouble with city folk? We saw a lot of them on the way here. Ned says, not much. They don't want to go into the wilderness. We have a wanderer once or twice a month, but you saw them. They stick to roads and buildings. Henry says, and railroad tracks. We saw hundreds on the tracks. Ned looks thoughtful. I didn't know that. Breaks my heart. Beth's eyes grow big when Ned's eyes flood with tears. Before the day's end, a family of four hikes around reuniting with old friends. At night the girls use the night vision goggles to play hide and seek with a lot of the other kids. One of the Tucker groups, called Tuckers because they tuck their pant legs into their boots, drive out of Death Valley in a caravan of off-road vehicles. American flags emblazoned with gold crosses, white supremacist banners, and other insignia, fly from the vans and trucks. Along the way, they try to get food and water, with some success. Most of the 29 members have Hitler haircuts, prisoner postures, and eyes that have known little joy. Their leader, Grand Wizard Carl, is 43, has a pot belly, and would blend in with most crowds. The one thing visually linking him to this crowd is the swastika tattoo that shows when he isn't wearing a tie and unbuttons the top of his shirt. Toxic sits next to Carl. Toxic recently got out of prison after 15 years for bludgeoning his father to death. He is missing an eye but refuses to wear a prosthetic, patch, or even sunglasses. They reach Oregon. In the wilderness, they park and cover their vehicles. Members unload the largest mover truck of all the gear. Tucker groups enroll members in the military to steal war tech. They unload rectangular machines that fold out to robotic dogs when switched on. Flat boxes each hold 100 palm-sized drones. Awol Jeff, with pockmarked cheeks and sad eyes, hands out earpieces, and helps the men push the devices deep into their ear canals. Why do so many of these dudes look like they have fetal alcohol syndrome with small heads, low nose bridges, and thin upper lips? Jeff's allegiance is with white supremacists, not the army, but he felt some pride going places with his fellow army soldiers, and pushes down the feeling of shame that sneaks up on him while tooling around with this group. A pang of regret hits his chest for having split the service. Going AWOL sucks ass. He made the right choice. America will soon be reborn like a born-again Christian, from sinner to believer. One doormat turned criminal sitting on a log says, why do you push these so deep in our ears? Jeff twists the earpiece to make it go deeper. Wait until tonight and you'll see. Dormat makes a poker face. The kingdom waits. Jeff nods. Greatest rewards. The others rest or go online while Carl and Jeff go over the map on a foldable. They mark strategic points. Jeff says, I've gone over some aerial footage that confirms these structures were built here. Everyone takes rations of food and water. 
When the sun sets, they dress in thermal blocking coveralls and strap on goggles helmet combos. When they turn on the goggles they each see a number. Jeff walks up to one after another. What's your number? A member says, 52. Why are we giving you the number? Jeff logs the number in his field tablet. We're all going to be linked up to the other soldiers, the dogs, the drones, and the map. Another member asks Carl, Sir, some of us want to get high for this. Is that okay? It's performant. Carl's eyebrows pop up and down. Sure. Why not? You probably need the energy. They hike in a line through the woods, everyone carrying cases and weapons. Two or three dogs march between each member. After a few miles, Carl uses the overcome. Alright boys, spread out. I'll tell each of you when to stop. He and Jeff watch where each member is on the foldable. 45, move to your left 20 paces. They wait in position for a few hours. At 1 in the morning Carl says, Okay boys, it's time. Remember your training. Follow the arrows on the ground, but you can disregard them if something comes up. Push the A button on the side of your helmets to let us know you're online. Jeff says, tell them to open the boxes. Carl says, open the drone cases. The symbols for the cases on Jeff's foldable turn from red to green. Jeff says, we're ready. Carl says, go ahead. Jeff clicks a button. The drones in all the cases come to life, fly up, and fly northwest. They're launched. Carl says, march. The men stand and walk in the direction the cloud of drones flew. The dogs come to life and go in the same direction. Through the goggles, the view is pure virtual reality created instantaneously by an AI combining infrared, ultraviolet, lighter, radio analysis, sound echo analysis, and small picked up by sensors on all the drones, dogs, and members' helmets. Points of interest appear as slowly rotating diamonds. Though the woods are nearly pitch black, the goggles show the men a bright landscape full of detail. Small sensors show trails in blue where humans have walked. Canine trails show in orange. The AI highlights metal objects, sharp objects, and straight-edge objects in red. The weapons members carry appear in their simulations. The members who have VR dots, about half, can also see their arms and legs. The drones use heat vision to determine where not to shine lighter. Warm bodies equal eyes watching. They also triangulate radio signals to guess where remote surveillance camera may send their feed from, and avoid shining their lighter on those spots. Otherwise, each drone would stand out like a flickering point of light to normal human vision, and through night vision devices. Four of the men approach the first of the proper tents. The buzz of the drones fills the air. The drones smell the air and inform the simulator AI where humans and animals are. The Tucker member in the front sees three dogs who were lying down get up. Two dogs take steps toward the member and bark. The member aims his silencer rifle and fires. One dog falls back, then the second, then the third with a sharp yelp and thud. A blue diamond spins above the buried bunker, but the human smell trails around it are faded. Human forms, on the other hand, glow inside the tent which appears translucent to the Tucker members. Four children, a woman, and a man huddle and make quick movements inside. The four members follow arrows toward the tent. Drones make decoy sounds of planes flying overhead, bombs detonating, and near-death screeches. The earpieces each member wears cancels out these noises, but the family in the tent jump and tremble. Shots crack and reverberate from the tent. The sides of the tent jump as bullets pierce the fabric from the inside going out. The four members drop to the ground. The rifle the father holds appears to the members as his heat is picked up by sensors. He comes out of the tent. A robot dog runs up to him and stands on its back legs. Loops on its front legs come out. It brings its front legs down on the man's arms, cuffing his wrists with the loops. He drops the rifle and struggles. The dog hardly moves while the man wrenches his arms. Wearing night vision goggles, the man looks all around but sees nothing. His shouts are quieted by the Tucker member earpieces, so they can still pick up other sounds. Hellish noises send the family inside the tent into a panic. The children wail. A woman cries, hush. Please hush. The family's sounds make them show up more clearly to the Tucker members. 
When Tucker jumps up, runs to the tent wielding a knife, slashes a hole in the fabric, and pulls a boy out by his arm. The Tucker zip ties the boy's wrists. Reinforced with carbon nanotubes, the zip ties are as strong as steel cables. The family can't see. The mother holds a rifle but points it at the ground as she holds one of the girls. Two of the girls hide side by side under cot. One Tucker steps over the father and enters. The others come in through the slash in the wall. It does not take long to bind the family by arms and feet. The boy and one of the girls kick and scream. A Tucker says, calm your kids down. The mother spits at him. The father is released from the robot and bound with zip ties. The Tuckers push the family down on their bellies and tie their arms and legs to cords that they loop over tree limbs to suspend their limbs in the air. The father says, leeches. Scum. His position pushes his head toward the ground, and he has trouble talking. The Tuckers are trained to speak as little as possible. One of the girls cries, where's George? What did you do to our dogs? Benjamin started taking care of his brother's survival plot when his brother came back from the war needing a hospital stay. With questioning eyes and large arms, Benjamin wakes up in his Walmart tent to the sounds of planes and explosions. Oh shit, the Russians have landed. He feels in the dark for the handheld radio and switches it on. The screen lights the inside of the tent only a tiny bit. Clubhouse, this is P-24. I'm hearing an invasion coming from the south. No one answers. He dresses in the dark, puts on night vision goggles, loads a cartridge in an automatic, and scurries from the tent. The woods through the night vision goggles glimmer green noise. He hunkers down behind a log and waits. Clubhouse, P-24. Group invasion from the south. Shots fired. Twigs crack. A mouse glows red nearby. A red bird shape swoops past. Tiny buzzing sounds, first difficult to hear, pass over him. He jerks right when a streak of red flashes past, but it's gone. Footsteps big and small come at him. One set of footsteps seems to come from his left. He takes the gun safety off and fires. Pop. 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 The gunfire echoes off a distant hill. Someone grabs his arms from behind and yanks them back. He drops the gun. A foot on his back knocks the air out of his limbs. The Tucker group takes camp after camp with little complication. Families are the easiest. The parent can't help but focus on the safety of their children. The singles fire some shots into the dark, but the only injury a Tucker receives so far is when he slips off a log. Some preppers have their radios on, some don't. When Bruce hears the alerts on his radio he jumps out of bed. His hard cheekbones stand out like bumpers under rings of eye wrinkles. After his divorce a few years ago, he spent most of his time out here. The landowner didn't seem to care anymore how long he stayed each time, so he built a one-room home 100 steps from his bunker. After yanking the mattress off the chest, he opens the lid and pulls out his weapons and ammo. On the radio, a woman whispers, they're firing some kind of missile. You must hear the planes. I've got surveillance cameras up all over and they didn't pick up anything. Now half of them are offline. The Merle family is getting attacked, that's a few miles away. Their night vision isn't working. Could that mean that the invaders are using military issue thermal clock in Kamo? He's tried to get a hold of some a few times. The radio voices talk about buzzing in the air. That's probably a drone cloud. If that's military issue also, he's fucked. It's suicide to try to fight them at night. May as well blindfold yourself before going into battle. The military has had smell vision for a long time. Leaving the night vision tech behind, he steps outside, chucks his smartphone and radio as far as he can, then runs to the opening of his underground bunker. The steel door is locked. Good. Make them work to get his provisions. Far off, gunfire pops. He runs south beaming his light. May as well take one of the trails. Too late to avoid making trails. Too bad he never thought of hiding a motorbike up here. Branches grab at his pant legs, and he becomes winded. He needs to pace himself. 
Let's face it, he's not in the greatest shape, and he'll need to run all night to dodge this wave. Henry shakes Beth. Wake up. Beth opens her eyes. Behind Henry, her mom and Allison kneel in the glow of the nightlight. The radio snaps and a shaky voice says, I think I see quadruped. Henry says, get up. We're going to the bunker. Without hesitation, Beth crawls out of her sleeping bag, takes the bag her father hands her, and follows him into the woods. The air is warm. What sounds like the crackling of a fire bothers her ears. Henry lights the way with his flashlight. Hulling packs, they reach the covering, a board he had pinned branches and leaves to. He lifts the board off the ground, and the girls duck into a tunnel. He asks his wife, did you bring the radio? Marguerite nods, throws her pack into the tunnel, and ducks under the board. Henry sticks the flashlight in a breast pocket, steps into the tunnel, and places the board behind him. He pulls a key on a chain out from under his shirt and kneels to stick it in the lock. The steel bunker door rings out with a clang. The family enters a plastic graphene tank as big as a bus, but so full there's barely enough room for all four of them. Metal shelves press in on them. Henry tugs the door closed and locks it with another solid clank. The silence pushes in on them. Allison presses her hands under her chin and fidgets. Beth makes a stern face, but she can't still her breath. Marguerite switches on a lamp so Henry clicks off his flashlight. She spread a blanket out and places Allison on her lap. Everything is going to be okay. We're just going to stay down here. This will all be over before you know it. Beth stares at her father with a grim expression. Henry sits sideways between shelves and digs the radio out. He plugs in earbuds to listen. Marguerite says, try to get some sleep girls. They wait. Allison shuts her eyes, but Beth watches her father. Henry clenches his teeth in the near dark and strains to keep still. By the reports, he can tell the invaders are getting closer. Why don't his fellow preppers go to their bunkers? His family remains silent, bless their hearts. Hopefully, this will pass over and the girls will feel safe again. They just have to get through this. The radio is silent for at least 20 minutes. Clank. The door unlocks and slowly opens to bright light, but no one stands outside. Henry rises, his legs shaking. A man's voice calls down, put down your weapons and come out. We don't want to use tear gas, but we will if we have to. Don't be heroes. Henry, who looks like he aged 10 years in a few seconds, turns around and locks eyes with Marguerite. She bares her teeth and makes a small nod. Morning turns to afternoon. The captured are brought to the northeastern side of the property where Hexapid Dozer and Hexapid Excavator sit in a clearing. Dirty, agitated, and exhausted, the captives stand in a group with hands zipped tied behind their backs. All Tucker group members wear masks. Most wear skull face masks. Ten Tuckers stand guard. One takes pictures of each captive with an old smartphone. Grand Wizard Carl rides a dirt bike into the clearing followed by Jeff on another motorbike. They dismount. Jeff says to Carl, after fighting overseas, this was like taking candy from a baby. Carl grunts approval and then addresses the captives. If you aren't white, you should leave right now. He points at Sonia, the Mexican wife of Daniel from Texas. He waves his hand at Maurice and Trudy, a black couple. Those pointed out waste no time heading for the trail that leads to a grassy service road outside the property. A Tucker member cuts their ties with cable cutters at the trailhead. Carl walks back and forth in front of those remaining. You may have noticed we took each of your pictures. If we see any of you near this property again, we will shoot on sight. We are a faction of the Tucker group. Our mission is to restart America as a white-only Christian-only nation. If you are like-minded and interested in joining our crusade, stay and have a talk with me. The rest of you can leave. Most of the captives leave. Two males stay behind, one shifting sheepishly and the other grinning like a fighter. As the hours pass, more captives arrive at the clearing, are photographed, racially profiled, and given the same choice. Henry and his family are added to a group around 1 o'clock. They stand close together and talk quietly to each other. 
Henry Steeles looks at the Tuckers. A Tucker member leads Benjamin toward the group of captives. Benjamin says, I won't be very useful to you. I can't cook or clean. My mind wanders all the time. Carl walks up to him. You're free to go as long as you never return. Benjamin smiles nervously and edges toward the trailhead. Yeah, so long. Bye then. I am so gone. You will never see me again. I didn't even really like it here. I am so out of here. He walks backward down the trail. The Tucker member with the cable cutters places a hand on Benjamin's shoulder to stop him and cut his wrist constraints. Benjamin complies. I wish you luck. I hope it goes well for you. I will go back to my Christian wife in the, on the farm. To her and our two blonde babies and we will read the Bible to them. We will pray for you, to Jesus, not to Muhammad. Goodbye. He turns and speed walks down the trail. Carl calls out, wait. Benjamin slows and achingly turns around. Carl says, where does your wife live? Benjamin clears his throat. Not far from here. On a pumpkin patch. We grow pumpkins. But you wouldn't like her. She bites. She bites really hard. She'll make you bleed. But she can't help it. And she smells like poop. The bad smelling poop. Know what I mean. All the time. And she has no hair. She lost it to chemo. That's why she bites and smells like poop. But I love her. And we read the Bible together. Carl sounds confused. Well, you folks take care. Benjamin hurries away. Yes. Praise be. Jeff says to Carl, he won't last a week out there. Carl makes his offer to this group and all the captives start to leave. Jeff nods toward Henry. Why is it, a schlub like that guy ends up with a hot wife like that? It's a disgrace of modern society that beta males get the women. Carl's pillow cheeks redden, and he calls out. You there, the father, don't you have something that belongs to us? Henry turns to face Carl, and he steps in front of Marguerite. Carl adopts a tone of impatience. The key to your bunker. You're the one we found in the bunker, aren't you? Henry motions with his chin to the key hanging on his necklace. It's this one. But you unlock the door. One of Carl's eyes goes corkscrew as he smiles. We could use a spare. Joe. Where's Joe? Joe, get the key off that man. One of the masked guards reluctantly approaches Henry. Henry's face twists with a sneer. Joe. Is it you? That's how you got in. Joe, this is your father's property. I've known you since you were a kid. How could you betray your father? Masked Joe walks up to Henry and reluctantly reaches for the necklace. Henry's head kicks back. Marguerite and the girls stand pressed together. Joe lifts the necklace off and then backs away. The other captives form a line heading down the trail. Henry calls to Joe, is it because you went to prison that one time? Is that how you got mixed up with these lowlifes? Marguerite shuffles and shakes her head. Her wrists burn against the zip ties. Carl says, he did it to save America. He's a real patriot, a real Christian. You don't see the big picture. Henry says, your big picture is a crackpot conspiracy. Carl says, oh, you're wrong. It's happening. Counterfeit America is going down in flames. Have you seen the news? America's poultry is dead. America's livestock is dying. Crops are wasted away. There's a famine purging the land. It's going to be complete in total. Tucker Group is here because we need to make sure, like the Phoenix, we rise up and control this nation when it needs us. We can't restart America white and Christian if we starve just like everyone else. Our time has come. We can't stop the famine, but we can be here to pick up the pieces and start over when the mud people have all died. Henry says, if you're going to survive when everyone else dies, aren't you forgetting something? Carl says, what's that? Henry says, woman. Marguerite shudders. The Tucker group laugh, some a little, some boisterously. Carl says, we didn't forget. When this place is good and squared away, a bunch of us are going to drive into town and get us some prostitutes, bring them back here, and keep them well fed. We get to choose the ones we like to look at the most, and that'll be that. Henry shifts his arms in the restraints. If they don't agree with your views, 
Carl says, I don't think they're going to debate us when we're feeding them. We'll make sure their children are raised to see things the way we do. Give me a child and I will give you the future of the nation. Harry says, you make it sound simple. And the people you force from this land will just starve with the rest of America. Sure, you got our stores, but what do you think we planned on doing when our stores ran out? We know how to forge. We know how to hunt. We know how to make weapons to hunt if need be. We know how to find medicine in the wild. We know how to collect water. When the food you stole begins to run out think about that. Carl pulls his collar to let the heat out. When the food runs out we'll come looking for you. You can be our servant. Henry says to his wife, let's leave these traitors. The girls push against their mother's legs. They all turn and head for the trail. Carl takes out a pistol, lifts it skyward, and lowers it to aim at Henry. Jeff rears back, startled. He opens his mouth to speak. Pop. Carl shoots Henry in the kidney, between where his arms are zip-tied. Henry lurches, bending backward in the middle, and he falls forward. His knees land hard. Marguerite and Allison scream. Carl turns pasty white. He gulps and licks his lips. Two tuckers back away. Others look at the ground by their feet. The family is a mess. Henry bellows. Marguerite kneels beside him screaming. The girls wail, run up against their parents, and fall back on their restrained arms. Some tuckers enjoy the spectacle. The youngest tucker raises a rifle in the air like a trophy. Yeah. Jeff says to Carl, why did you do that? What the hell are we going to do about this mess? Carl huffs and yells, Toxic. He looks around. Where's Toxic? Toxic, come take care of this. Toxic emerges from the woods and walks straight for the family. He draws a machete that he last sharpened three days ago. Marguerite sees Toxic coming. No. 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 Toxic positions himself behind Henry and pulls Henry's head back by the forehead. In shock, Henry does nothing to stop Toxic. Toxic places the blade with precision and draws it across Henry's neck. The flesh snaps open and blood gushes out. The wailing and screaming abruptly change cadence. Even Carl averts his eyes. The girls run back, run forward, kick Toxic's leg, and land on their mother. Marguerite opens her mouth and moans so loudly that birds fly up from nearby trees. Toxic steps from behind Henry to behind Margaret, knocking Allison down in the process. Henry slumps to the ground. Beth stands watching with giant eyes. When Toxic grabs Margaret's forehead she squirms and tries to wriggle loose. He struggles with her, clamping down harder on her head. He puts the base end of the blade against her neck and draws the blade across like a violinist drawing a bow. Allison screeches. Beth staggers back and falls backward, passed out. Toxic turns to Allison. Carl raises a hand, enough. Stop. Toxic steps back letting Marguerite fall in a heap. In the following days, the Tucker group party a lot. The masks come off. When looking through their spoils, they find whiskey and wine. Many use coke, crushies, and nickelbacks. Some blitz out and lose it in the woods. Four go hunting and use a motorbike to drag back half a cow. Others invent a game involving dodging a bullwhip. Most of the festivities take place in and near the clubhouse. Inside the clubhouse, Carl and Jeff sit next to greasy chicken bones on plastic plates, beer cans, and glass shards in a dustpan, both drunk and full. Jeff nods heavily forward. What are you going to do with those two? Beth and Allison sit in a corner, zip-tied to a metal chair. Their faces are dirty and streaked. Beth's left arm is badly abraded. Carl says, well, they'll be old enough to be wives one of these days. Carl tries to make a convincing smile. Jeff glances up and sneers. Carl's chest heaves many times like he might retch. Jeff and Carl have gone with others to drive the hexapidozer through the woods to the clubhouse. Evening hues soften the light. Five Tucker members sit around a table snorting lines. Chef says, you guys ever hear of an invisible leash? The others shake their heads. No. Chef waves an arm toward the girls. Get those two hooked on drugs and we'll have total control of them. Like a drone and a remote control. 
the other's grunt approval. Chev leans forward and with some effort to keep his balance, he stands. Help me with them. Crack knocks his chair back as he stands. They approach the girls who tug their restraints. Chev uses the scissors on his pocket knife to cut Allison's zip tie. He grabs her arm and hands the pocket knife to Crack. Chev yanks Allison up. Come on then. I wouldn't have to grip you so hard if you stopped flapping around. Look at her, flapping like a bird. You're going to break your wings. If you knew how happy you're going to feel in a minute, you would stop the fuck down. One Tucker sitting at the table says, what are you going to give them? Chef says, let's give them crushies. That's what prostitutes take. For the love of God. Allison twists out of his grip, runs around the table, and out the front door that's left wide open. Chef falls and his belly slaps the floor. Those sitting at the table do little more than watch, their heads bobbing with drunkenness. Chef climbs to his feet. He staggers to the table, grabs a pistol, and heads for the door. He stumbles down the step as Beth flies out of the door. Allison runs across the yard, kicking up dirt. Chef steadies his firing arm across his other arm and fires. Boom. The gun kicks and a ribbon of smoke flows out the front. Allison flies forward and lands on her face. Beth runs up to her. When she reaches Allison, she falls beside her sister. Blood flows out from a bullet wound on Allison's leg. Tuckers come and go from the clubhouse, but everyone leaves Beth and Allison alone. Allison lies in a bed in the small room in the front of the house. Beth tries to stop the blood with an old jean jacket. Allison cries at first, but she grows quieter and colder as day turn to night. Allison closes the door. Outside the room Tucker's party all night. They crank heavy metal, shout and fight each other. Beth stays awake sitting next to the bed. Before the morning when things have quieted down, she hears two voices outside the door. We're just going to leave them. I don't know. The little one won't last. Don't laugh. I'm not laughing. What if the other one runs? Then she's not our problem anymore. In the morning, Beth opens the door and walks through the main room without having a good look around. Streaks of blood paint the floor between the front door and the room she comes from. One man slumps against the wall, his neck bent and legs splayed across the floor. Men lie on the three couches, at the table, and on the floor. The air stinks of burned chemicals and cheap booze. Beth walks straight to the closet converted to a radio room. She pulls out the speaker wires, switches the channel, and flips a power switch. Round buttons on the console light up. The box containing the emergency signal generator is as big as an old smartphone. She finds the switch on the side and slides it on. The red arm on a volume meter dances. She unscrews the caps on the console lights, removes the light bulbs, and puts the caps back on. By resting half a book on top of the radio, she covers the volume meter with the other half. Then she walks back to the little room and shuts herself inside. The next day at noon, several Tucker members run out of the clubhouse when propellers chop the air. They look up. A sky crane glides over the building about 50 yards above. On forearms, propellers spin, and in the middle a shipping box lowers. Cables lower the box. Tuckers come out of the building, most holding guns. The more sober ones have the foresight to put on face masks. The box is as long and wide as a bus but only three feet tall, and the top is open. Four soldiers sit inside among tons of crates. Three of the soldiers have dark skin. When the box settles, the soldiers stand. One soldier looks at the Tuckers, from one face to the next. Do you folks have a boss or manager? Carl scratches his head and walks forward. I guess that would be me. He notes that the soldiers do not have weapons drawn. The soldier looks around nervously. You called. We have food. You're sending out a distress signal. Carl's head pounds. The inside of his mouth is coated with glue-like phlegm. It feels like a drain has opened, and all the blood in his head is drained out. What are you talking about? The soldier calms his delivery. America is getting food. We are pulling through. 
America is going to be alright. People won't starve. Carl says, everyone. The soldier says, it's a national effort. Everyone is getting food. Carl says, but there is no food. That's impossible. The soldier says, new companies turn plant matter into meat. It's like brewing beer, except the product is meat. And robots are getting grow houses working again. America outsmarted famine. Carl says, but they can't get food to everyone. The soldier is confused. Why is this guy arguing? A small person pushes the front door open and runs down the steps. The little girl, dirty, disheveled, and caked with dry blood, gets halfway from the building to the soldier. She screams, I'm a hostage. Help. They kidnapped us. They killed my sister. Shev runs, catches her, and hauls her back into the building. The four soldiers freeze for one long sentence. As if they could all read each other's minds, they reach for their weapons which are all set nearby. The Tucker group opens fire. They pulverize the four soldiers. Blotches of red open like flowers all over their arms, necks, and lower faces. One of the soldiers must have hit a control for the sky crane because the box lifts portly, drags across the ground, and rams a tree. All the Tuckers are like angry ants running all over the place. Jeff finds the controls for the sky crane near the foot of one of the soldiers. He brings the quadcutter down and shuts it off. All the members of the Tucker group watch the news on the big screen in the main room. America has achieved a technological miracle and made food for millions where there was no food a few months before. Americans everywhere celebrate. Block parties have lasted for weeks. America is truly a great nation, made up of strong, civic-minded citizens who have all pulled together to thwart what could have been a death blow from her enemies. The Tucker white nationalists grip knuckles, cow their heads, scowl, and screw up their eyes. The men are devastated. Their dream was so close. Many have waited most of their lives for the great restart, and how often does something like a famine come about? Jeff says, what do we do? Military Connect links tell command centers when and where soldiers have died. Carl knows they need to act fast. The Tucker group is around today because we split up and act as independent agents. That's what we need to do. We scatter. We all head out in different directions and communicate covertly like before. Carl claps his hands loudly. Wake up. We must move out now. No sleeping here tonight. Hide your identities until you get out of Oregon. Within the hour all have packed and huffed it out of there. Some are chosen to take the vehicles. Those five hike down the woodsy slope and come out on the service road. Two sky cranes pass above their heads. They hurry to pull branches off the vehicles and climb on board. They will drive in reverse down the service road together, then separate once they reach a paved road. They each start up the engines. Over their earpieces, the driver in the back says, I just heard a click. Each driver thinks about this while the engines rumble. Bombs under the seats go off within seconds of each other. Four of the five men fall and climb out of the cabs, missing parts of their back ends. Blood spills out on the grassy ground. Two can't walk at all. The other two try to walk, but it looks like torture. The exposed muscle gushes blood and tears. Watching this through a scope on his sniper rifle, Bruce waits for more members to come out of the trees to help their comrades. Men come. That's weird. Should he put these five out of their misery? They flip around on the ground like fish out of the water. Bloody murder. To be continued. Thank you for listening. My landing page is solomeshan.com. There you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes a timeline and illustrations.